Book seven of ten books on architecture. Introduction. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Frederick Carlson. Ten books on architecture by Vitruvius. Translated by Morris Hickey Morgan. Book seven. Introduction. One. It was a wise and useful provision of the ancients to transmit their thoughts to posterity by recording them in treatises, so that they should not be lost, but being developed in succeeding generations through publication in books, should gradually attain in later times to the highest refinement of learning. And so the ancients deserve no ordinary but unending thanks, because they did not pass on in envious silence, but took care that their ideas of every kind should be transmitted to the future in the writings. 2. If they had not done so, we could not have known what deeds were done in Troy, nor what Thales, Democritus, Anaxagoras, Xenophanes, and the other physicists thought about nature, and what rules Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Zeno, Epicurus, and other philosophers lay down for the conduct of human life, nor would the deeds and motives of Croesus, Alexander, Darius, and other kings have been known unless the ancients had compiled treatises and published them in commentaries to be had in universal remembrance with posterity three so while they deserve our thanks those on the contrary deserve our reproaches who steal the writings of such men and publish them as their own and those also who depend in their writings not on their own ideas but who enviously do wrong to the works of others and boast of it deserve not merely to be blamed but to be sentenced to actual punishment for their wicked course of life with the ancients, however, it is said that such things did not pass without pretty strict chastisement. What the results of their judgments were, it may not be out of place to set forth as they transmitted to us. 4. The kings of the house of Attalus, having established, under the influence of the great charms of literature, an excellent library at Paragamus to give pleasure to the public, Ptolemy also was aroused, with no end of enthusiasm and emulation, into exertions to make a similar provisions with no less diligence at Alexandria. Having done so with the greatest care, he felt that this was not enough without providing for its increase and development for which he sowed the seed. He established public contests in honour of the Muses and Apollo, and appointed prizes and honours for victorious authors in general, as is done in the case of athletes. 5. These arrangements having been made, and the contest being at hand, it became necessary to select literary men as judges to decide them. The king soon selected six of the citizens, but could not easily find a proper person to be the seventh. He therefore turned to those who presided over the library, and asked whether they knew anybody who was suitable for the purpose. Then they told him that there was one Aristophanes, who was daily engaged in reading through all the books with the greatest enthusiasm and the greatest care. Hence, when the gathering for the contest took place, and separate seats were set apart for the judges, Aristophanes was summoned with the rest and sat down in the place assigned to him. 6. A group of poets were first brought in to contend, and as they recited their compositions, the whole audience, by its applause, showed the judges what it approved. So, when they were individually asked for their votes, the six agreed, and awarded the first prize to the poet who, as they observed, had most pleased the multitude, and the second to the one who came next. But Aristophanes, on being asked for his vote, urged that the poet who had least pleased the audience should be declared to be the first. 7. As the king and the entire assembly showed great indignation, he arose and asked and received permission to speak. 
Silence being obtained, he stated that only one of them, his man, was a poet, and that the rest had recited things not their own. Furthermore, that judges ought to give their approval not to thefts, but to original compositions. The people were amazed, and the king hesitated. But Aristophanes, trusting to his memory, had a vast number of volumes brought out from bookcases which he specified, and, by comparing them with what had been recited, obliged the thieves themselves to make confession. So the king gave orders that they should be accused of theft, and after condemnation sent them off in disgrace. But he honoured Aristophanes with the most generous gifts, and put him in charge of the library. 8. Some years later, Zoilus, who took the surname of Homerimastix, came from Macedonia to Alexandria, and read to the king his writings directed against the Iliad and Odyssey. Ptolemy, seeing the father of poets and captain of all literature abused in his absence and his works, to which all the world looked up in admiration, disparaged by this person, made no rejoinder, although he thought it an outrage. Zoilus, however, after remaining in the kingdom some time, sank into poverty and sent a message to the king, requesting that something might be bestowed upon him. 9. But it is said that the king replied that Homer, though dead a thousand years ago, had all that time been the means of livelihood for many thousands of men. Similarly, a person who laid claim to higher genius ought to be able to support not one man only, but many others. And in short, various stories are told about his death, which was like that of one found guilty of parricide. Some writers have said that he was crucified by Philadelphus, others that he was stoned at Chios, others again that he was thrown alive upon a funeral pyre at Smyrna. Whichever of these forms of death befell him, it was a fitting punishment in his just due. For one who accuses men that cannot answer and show face to face what was the meaning of the writings obviously deserves no other treatment. 10. But for my part, Caesar, I am not bringing forward the present treatise after changing the titles of other men's book and inserting my own name, nor has it been my plan to win approbation by finding fault with ideas of another. On the contrary, I express unlimited thanks to all the authors that have in the past, by compiling from antiquity remarkable instances of the skill shown by genius, provided us with abundant materials of different kinds, drawing from them, as it were, water from springs and converting them to our own purposes, we find our powers of writing rendered more fluent and easy, and, relying upon such authorities, we venture to produce new systems of instruction. 11. Hence, as I saw that such beginnings on their part formed an introduction suited to the nature of my own purpose, I set out to draw from them and to go somewhat further. In the first place, Agatharchus in Athens, when Aeschylus was bringing out a tragedy, painted a scene and left a commentary about it. This has led Democritus and Anaxagoras to write on the same subject, showing how, given a centre in a definite place, the lines should naturally correspond with due regard to the point of sight and the divergence of the visual rays, so that by this deception a faithful representation of the appearance of buildings might be given in painted scenery, and so that, though all is drawn on a vertical flat façade, some parts may seem to be withdrawing into the background and others to be standing out in front. 12. Afterwards, Silenus published a book on the proportions of Doric structures, Theodorus on the Doric temple of Juno, which is in Samos, 
Chersiphron and Metagenes on the Ionic temple at Ephesus, which is Diana's, Pythios on the Ionic fane of Minerva, which is at Priene, Ictinus and Carpion on the Doric temple of Minerva, which is on the Acropolis of Athens. Theodorus the Phocian on the round building which is at Delphi, Philo on the proportions of temples and on the naval arsenal which was at the port of Piraeus, Hermogenes on the Ionic temple of Diana which is at Magnesia, a Psivdipteral, and on that of Father Bacchus at Theos, a Monopteral, Arcesius on the Corinthian proportions and on the Ionic temple of Asclepius Atralus, which it is said that he built with his own hands. On the mausoleum, Satyrus and Pythius, who were favoured with the greatest and highest good fortune. 13. For men whose artistic talents are believed to have won them the highest renown for all time, and laurels forever green, devised and executed works of supreme excellence in this building. The decoration and perfection of the different facades were undertaken by different artists in emulation with each other. Leocharis, Bryoxis, Scopas, Praxiteles, and, as some think, Timotheus, and the distinguished excellence of their art made that building famous among the seven wonders of the world. 14. Then, too, many less celebrated men have written treatises on the laws of symmetry, such as Nexaris, Theosidas, Demophilus, Polis, Leonidas, Silanion, Melampus, Sarnicus, and Evranor. Others again on machinery, such as Diades, Archytas, Archimedes, Stesibius, Nymphodorus, Philo of Byzantium, Diphilus, Democles, Carius, Polyidus, Pyrus, and Agesistratus. From their commentaries I have gathered what I saw was useful for the present subject and formed it into one complete treatise, and this principally because I saw that many books in this field had been published by the Greeks, but very few indeed by our countrymen. Fufisius, in fact, was the first to undertake to publish a book on this subject. Terentius Varro, also in his work on the Nine Sciences, has one book on architecture, and Publius Septimius two. Fifteen. But to this day nobody else seems to have bent his energies to his branch of literature, although there have been, even among our fellow-citizens in old times, great architects who could also have written with elegance. For instance, in Athens the architects Antistates, Calaiscris, Antimachidas, and Pormus laid the foundations when Pesistratus began the temple of Olympian Jove, but after his death they abandoned the undertaking on account of political troubles. Hence, it was that when, about four hundred years later, King Antiochus promised to pay the expenses of that work, the huge cellar, the surrounding columns in dipteral arrangement, and their architraves and other ornaments adjusted according to the laws of symmetry, were nobly constructed with great skill and supreme knowledge by Cosutius, a citizen of Rome. Moreover, this work has a name for its grandeur, not only in general, but also among the select few. 16. There are, in fact, four places possessing temples embellished with workmanship in marble that causes them to be mentioned in a class by themselves with the highest renown. To their excellence and the wisdom of their conception they owe their place of esteem in the ceremonial worship of the gods. First there is the temple of Diana at Ephesus, in the Ionic style, undertaken by Chersiphron of Gnosis and his son Metagenes, and said to have been finished later by Demetrius, who was himself a slave of Diana and by Paeonius the Milesian. 
At Miletus, the temple of Apollo, also Ionic in its proportions, was the undertaking of the same Peonius and the Ephesian Daphnis. At Eleusis, the cella of Ceres and Proserpine of vast size was completed to the roof by Ictinus in the Doric style, but without exterior columns and with plenty of rooms for the customary sacrifices. 17. Afterwards, however, when Demetrius of Phalerum was master of Athens, Philo set up columns in front before the temple and made it prostyle. Thus, by adding an entrance hall, he gave the initiates more room and imparted the greatest dignity to the building. Finally, in Athens, the temple of Olympion, with its dimensions on a generous scale and built in the Corinthian style and proportions, is said to have been constructed, as written above, by Cosutius, no commentary by whom has been found. But Cosutius is not the only man by whom we should like to have writings on our subject. Another is Gaius Musius, who, having great knowledge on which to rely, completed the cella, columns, and entablature of the Marian temple of honor and valor in symmetrical proportions according to the accepted rules of the art. If this building had been of marble, so that besides the refinement of its art it possessed dignity coming from magnificence and a great outlay, it would be reckoned among the first and greatest of works. 18. Since it appears, then, that our architects in the old days, and a good many even in our own times, have been as great as those of the Greeks, and nevertheless only a few of them have published treatises, I resolved not to be silent, but to treat the different topics methodically in different books. Hence, since I have given an account of private houses in the sixth book, in this, which is the seventh in order, I shall treat of polished finishings and the methods of giving them both beauty and durability. End of Book 7 Introduction